If you have your Bible, let's turn in it today to Romans chapter 11, picking up right where we left off last week. We'll be in Romans 11, 22 through 24 today, and if you don't have a Bible, then get one of the black Bibles on the end of the pew, and that should be on page 947. And if you don't have a print copy of the Bible for yourself, then please just take that one. We want you to have uh, God's Word. It's our gift to you. Uh, Let's read together from Romans 11, verses 22 through 24, as Paul has been contemplating this, this people of God, this vine or this olive tree uh, to which we as believers have been grafted in. He says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? As we come here, we we have uh, been talking about God. We've been talking about God in relation to his people, the way that God throughout all times has one people for himself. Uh, in the, the passage that we were in last week, the root was represented, which we, we are pretty sure means Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those patriarchs within the people of Israel, who are the root not because they were just the greatest, but because they had faith. They had God-given faith. And then those who have the faith of Abraham are called to come after. But God had built up this people uh, that, that he had considered an olive tree, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, sometimes represented in the Old Testament as uh, a vine, sometimes represented as a vineyard, sometimes represented as an olive tree. And that's the picture that Paul has taken up here. But he's told us here that ultimately being part of the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not ultimately what determines being a part of the people of God. What determines it is having the faith of Abraham, which is faith in the one true God, which is faith in Jesus Christ, who is God who has come in the flesh, God the Son, who is the true Messiah. And he talked about how those who were from among the people of Israel who failed to believe in Jesus as Messiah were cut off from the olive tree. They may have been part of Israel in an outward sense, Israel in terms of the descendants of Abraham, but not in terms of being the true Israel that he spoke of in Romans 9. That they have been cut off, but that we, and I'm I'm talking about myself as a Gentile, and I I do know that we have some in this room who who are of Jewish heritage, and and that's incredible uh, in the ways that it speaks of here, but in another way, it's we, we, we got the same thing, guys. We get to be part of the same people of God, having the same relationship with God by being grafted into the same olive tree by faith in the same Savior whose name is Jesus. His name is Jesus, and he speaks about himself in John 15 as the true plant that we need to be a branch of. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me you can do nothing. And so that's kind of where we've come, but there was a call right at the end of of where we were last week in verse 20 and 21. 
not to become proud, not to become arrogant, not to say to those who were of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who have not believed in Jesus, to just say, ah, you guys are just dirt now because you didn't believe in Jesus, and I've believed in Jesus, and here I am in your olive tree, and that's not how we're supposed to be. He says, don't be arrogant toward the branches. And that's where we pick up today is that that thought of, of the fact that God has been so kind to us in Christ and that God has showed such severity toward those who did not believe in Jesus. That ought to point our eyes to a contemplation about God. And just just look at the, this is even before we get to the outline on the back of your bulletin. I, I feel like we've got kind of an extra point before that, but just from the word note, where it says in verse 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God. There's a command there. It's saying, you, Christian, you, reading this Bible, here's something you need to do here. You, you need to stop for a second and take note of something about God himself. And that's something we all, always ought to be looking for as we're reading the Bible. Right? The Bible contains instructions that we are to follow. The Bible contains doctrine that we are to believe. The Bible contains history of God's dealing with people throughout the ages. It contains future prophecy, all kinds of things that the Bible contains. But you need to know that the whole thing is about God. And the whole thing is calling you to be about God. And so as, as we have been talking about, and will, as we go through the rest of this chapter, talk about how, uh, how hard it is to wrap our minds around what, what is it that God has, has decided to do with physical Israel versus spiritual Israel, and what are his plans for the future in terms of Jews and Gentiles and the fullness of each, and what does that mean? We're going to get to this point where all of this sums up. I'm just giving you a little preview in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. You hear that? Ultimately, the point is not to be able to win the argument with people who have different understandings of this hard passage. Ultimately, the point is God. And he stops right here and he tells us that, he, he tells us, note then this thing about God. Note the kindness and the severity of God. And like I say, we ought to always be thinking, what, what is this passage telling me about God? Well, what, what it's going to tell us today is that God is both kind and severe. God within himself, in the very holiness, the very nature of who God is, has both kindness and severity. Now, there, there are some who are out there who only want to talk about God's kindness. And you see this in various places. There can be other errors mixed in with that because typically if you're only going to focus on one aspect of God to the exclusion of others, then there's probably going to be some other things that come up with that. If you turn on your TV any given day, you can probably find Joel Osteen. And Joel Osteen will be talking about his idea of the kindness of God. And he will be smiling at you the whole time. And then before him, there was Robert Schuller who would have been talking about the kindness of God. And before him, there, there was Norman Vincent Peale, 
who would have just been talking about the kindness of God in terms of the power of positive thinking and this idea just focus only on the positive things and if you bring in the negative then you're going to you know you're going to jinx it for yourself it's kind of the idea well what that's doing is that that's that's presenting a false impression of who God is because God is is not only someone who has kindness. If we just viewed him in, in terms of his kindness alone, then you would have this God who's just this big cuddly teddy bear in the sky. And and just that he's he's trying so hard to cuddle everybody. And why won't everybody let him cuddle, cuddle them? But what's going on here, though, is he says, note the kindness and the severity of God. I should note also, too, that there are those who get kind of an overreaction to the Osteens and the Schulers and, and others of the kind of the positive thinking uh, branch of teachers out there. They'll, they'll overreact and say, well, because I have heard this false teaching that sounds very smiley, therefore I'm going to go all in on the severity of God to the exclusion of the kindness of God. Right? To say, well, I am just going to talk about God's judgment. I am just going to talk about the fact that God hates the sin and the sinner. I'm going to just talk about all of these things about the severity of God, and that's not a right impression of God either, is it? Or else we'd all be doomed, which is something God could have done, but in the character of himself, he has both severity and kindness. And so there's a call here to note this. And sometimes this throws people off. They, they would think, well, that, uh, you know, God can't be good. He can't really be kind if he is also severe. We're going to talk about what those things mean in a second. But let me just tell you that we already know just, just from human experience, from seeing people in the things that they do that are right, we know that kindness and severity can exist within the same person and both be admirable. Think about a soldier who goes overseas and is fighting terrorists on the battlefield. But then he comes home and he hugs his little baby daughter when he gets off the plane. You see the severity on the one hand, but kindness on the other, and we look at that and we see that is good. Or a police officer who would, who would make an early morning raid on a house to arrest a drug lord. But then later that day, maybe he goes and volunteers at a home for special needs adults. And you're not going to look at either one of those things and say that it's bad. They're both good. Or a judge who's in his courtroom, sits there, bangs his gavel, and sentences a criminal to life in prison for a horrific crime. But then later that day when his grandson lies about whether he washed his hands before dinner, he gives that little boy a second chance and smiles at him. You see, these things can go together, but they go together perfectly, beautifully in the person of God. This is something that's contemplated throughout the Scriptures. Throughout the Old Testament, there is this, this attempt over and over again to, to, to just get our minds around this God who has such loving kindness and such severity all within himself. I'll just give you a couple examples of that. Psalm 125, verses 4 and 5. He says, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, O Lord, the, uh, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. You hear that? You've got 
God doing good to some, others, he leads away with the evildoers. Or Nahum 1, 7 and 8, it says, The Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Beautiful. Listen to the next verse. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. You hear that? The kindness and the severity of God. Or even as God announced about himself in Exodus 34, when he was telling Moses his name, which is I am Yahweh, the Lord. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Do you hear the kindness of God? And then what else does he say about himself in the same breath? He says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So let's just contemplate God a little bit today. Let's note God and let's note the kindness and the severity of God and these things coming together in the beauty of his holiness. First, let's think about the severity of God. You think we've already thought about it. We're going to start thinking about it now. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. He says severity towards those who have fallen. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, for one thing, it's something that was known to the people of Israel in the fact that God had granted to them not only blessings for obedience, but also curses for disobedience. And as they had had, had this covenant with, uh, with all of the people that God delivered through Moses, he made that very clear, especially when you come to the book of Deuteronomy. Here is how I will bless you if you obey. Here is how I will curse you if you disobey. And in those curses, they're carried over into the book of Joshua, but he says in Joshua 23, 15, just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God when he, which he commanded you and go after and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that I have promised. Now, what is that talking about? Well, that's, that's talking about those physical promises to the physical people. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by the way, I say the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You may or may not remember that in the book of Exodus, which we went through a couple years ago, when the people came out from the land of Egypt, it wasn't just them. A bunch of other random people said a mixed multitude came up with them. These people who realized, wait a second, the God of Israel is the one that is powerful over the gods of Egypt. I need to be on the side of this people. So God has been bringing people into that olive tree from outside all along. He's always been doing this. But as they had been gathered together as this physical people, this physical group, he said, here's what you need to do. Be holy as I am holy. Do these things and I will bless you. Disobey these things and I will curse you. Does that mean that God's eternal blessing is for those who do 
things for him. And that God's eternal, uh, eternal curse is for those who have failed to do those things. Well, I have good news for you guys. I have bad news and good news, okay? The bad news is that God's eternal curse does come for those who have failed to do good things for him. Bad news is not just that, but that that's all of us. If we were going to try to have the blessings of God on the basis of those old things, on the basis of that covenant with Moses, on the basis of works, we would all be doomed. But what was going on there was not just the fact that he would bless them for obedience and that he would curse them for disobedience. It was also pointing forward to something greater because even built in within that, there were sacrifices for sin and sacrifices that would be made consistently for sin. And those sacrifices were pointing forward to Jesus, the Lamb of God who would be slain for our sins. And that as we trust in Jesus, we can have what all of those blessings and curses that he told to Moses, what they were all pointing to. Those weren't an end in themselves. They were pointing to eternal things. When he talks about, do this and I will bless you in this land, in this place, in this life, that's temporal. But when we talk about, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, that's eternal. You see that? There there were these Old Testament pictures that pointed to the eternal realities that exist only in Christ. And they always have existed only in Christ, even for the people at that time. But I'm just, I'm going to go way off course if I go into that line right too much. So, but here's the eternal things too. This is, this is Psalm 58. This is not even New Testament. This is still Old Testament. Psalm 58.10. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. See, he's talking not just about physical, temporal things. He's saying there is an eternal judgment of God that's coming. The severity of God toward those who have fallen away. He says in Deuteronomy 32, See now that I, even I, am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand, for I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries, and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. Here's the reason to rejoice, according to Deuteronomy 32:43, For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Do you hear this? The severity of God. The severity of God. You need to know that there is a real place called hell. You need to know that every single one of us came into this world as sinners. That the wages of sin, according to Romans 6.23, is death. And therefore, what each and every one of us have come into the world deserving is death and hell forever. We do not come into the world as innocent people deserving the kindness of God. 
We are by nature sinners, and the only way that anyone can escape the severity of God, that anyone can escape the eternal reality of hell, is by the mercy of God, by the grace that God would give to us freely, not in response to what we've done, but because of what he has done in Jesus Christ. That is always the case. God has this severity that he is right to give. Those who would look at God's severity and say that God's wrong to deal with sinners in this way have a wrong idea of who sinners are and what sin is. If God were to let sin go, he would not be good. If you get a judge on the bench who lets all the criminals go, there's probably still going to be some people who vote for him. But he would not be good. He would not be good. You know, this God, he is good. He is right. His severity is right. Those who hate God always point to that severity and always say that he is not good because of it. Jesus talked about this. He, he told a parable in Luke 19 where there was a disobedient servant who refused to obey his master in taking care of, uh, of, of the master's finances while the master was away on a trip. But here, here is the complaint against the master that the disobedient servant raises against him. He says in Luke 19, 21, you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. You hear that? That's a picture that Jesus gave us of what hatred for God looks like. To look at God and say, how dare you be severe? How dare you? As though God is going to look back and say, sorry, human being, I was wrong. No. What happened to him? He commanded that he be bound and cast out. He experienced that severity that he accused God of being wrong for having. Or Ezekiel 33, verse 17, Your people say the way of the Lord is not just when it is their own way that is not just. You see what's going on here? The severity of God, God punishing sinners, it's not because God is some kind of an evil being who's just trying to get everybody. It's because sin is serious. God's way is just. Man's way is unjust. God is right in all this. Who is it that he says that he is severe toward? He says severity toward those who have fallen. In the context of the passage that we're in, in context of Romans, he's specifically talking here about those from among the Jewish people who have refused to believe in their God when he came in the flesh to them in the person of Jesus Christ. They had, they had all kinds of advantages. They had, they had the law, they had the word, they had the synagogue worship. They had all kinds of knowledge about God, but then when he came, they looked at him and said, crucify him. And those who continue to reject Christ continue to call out with their brothers from those times. They have fallen away. They have fallen away. And he says there is severity toward those who have fallen away. 
He says those who were, were born into that covenant community of Israel but failed to believe in the Messiah who had come, that they were cut off. That's a sobering thing to think about. It just shows you that God's list in heaven, the book of life, doesn't have all the same names on it that the lists on earth do. Even as you read through the genealogies in the Old Testament, read through all of these places in the Old Testament that sometimes we skip over, but you shouldn't. Eat your vegetables when you read your Bible. When you read those names, there's one thing to reflect on. Not all of those names are in the Lamb's Book of Life. The role on earth is not the same as the role in heaven. It's a sobering thing to consider. By the way, that's not just the case for Israel. That's also the case for churches today. But just hold that thought until we get there in the text because it's coming. It's coming. But we don't just have here a call to note the severity of God. We also have a call to note the kindness of God. So let's do that. The same God who is right to avenge his righteousness, to avenge upon the wicked, to, to have his arrows drunk with their blood, as it said in one of the passages that we just read. This same God is also a God who is abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Incredible. When he says the kindness of God, what's that talking about? Well, it's, it's talking about that loving kindness, that steadfast love that you see over and over, especially in the Psalms, like Psalm 118.1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. That's what we're called to contemplate here. This covenant love, this giving of the mercy and the riches of His grace. This is the aspect of who God is in His goodness that overflows to us and makes us experience His goodness makes us experience his grace. Here's the way it's expressed in Titus 3. He says, but when God, excuse me, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that means he's calling Jesus God there, by the way, God our Savior. It says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is God's goodness, God's kindness, as He says toward us. Who's the us that He's talking about? Well, it's to all who believe, but specifically, if you look back in, in Romans eleven thirteen, He said, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. And He's calling us who were not of the heritage of Abraham to rejoice that God would show us such kindness. That Christ would be the Lamb who was slain for peoples from every tribe and tongue and nation. So that He would make us a kingdom and priests and we would reign forever. We can rejoice that His mercy has been poured out to us. We were outside. He's brought us in by the blood of Christ. He says in Ephesians 2, 7, this is just a description of this kindness that he has. He says that he's done this so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
thinking about that kindness. We're sinners. Jews are not more Gentile or not more sinners than Gentiles. Gentiles are not more sinners than Jews. He made that very clear in the opening four chapters of Romans. When God shows his kindness to us in mercy, it is completely undeserved. Completely free. It's hard to come up with an analogy of that, but in 1956, January 8th, 1956, on that day there there were five missionaries who had been preparing for some time in various ways to make contact with an unreached people group in Ecuador named the Horani tribe. And they came in, they, they landed in a float plane on the river beside this tribe. They had flown by before. They had dropped things off. They had made all kinds of signals to try to establish we are kind, we want to come, and and we want to bless you. But when these five missionaries came forward and made contact with this tribe, the first thing that happened is spears through their bodies. All five of them were brutally murdered there on, on the shore of that river by the Hurani tribesmen. An amazing thing happened after that. This could have gone any number of ways, but one, one of the missionaries who was killed there was named Jim Elliott, and her, his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, went back with her children and over time managed not only to make contact with that tribe, but to move there, to live among them, to share the gospel with them, to see some of the very men who had murdered her husband come to faith in Christ. Remember, at this time, there, there wasn't any judge in that tribe to send somebody to prison for murder. It was just around. <laughs> and there she is, serving them, showing mercy to them. And they became her brothers in Christ and lifelong friends. What an incredible act of kindness. And I've just got to tell you, that act of kindness is so small in relation to God's act of kindness toward us sinners in Christ. The offense of sinning against the holy God, by definition, is infinitely greater than even murder against a man. It it, it is something that could not possibly be dealt with or forgiven with any amount of severity that human beings could ever inflict. But here's what God has done in His kindness is He has sent His own Son. Christ, God the Son, has come in the flesh because we were sinners and because in Himself He had love and grace and mercy. And He went to the cross and He took the severity that we deserve in His death, bearing the full wrath of God the Father on the cross so that we could then experience His kindness forever and ever. Not on the basis of something that we would do to thank Him for that or to make up for what we did, but on the basis of trusting in Him, of knowing that He is the Savior. Turning to Him, knowing that we are the sinners, that change of mind that is called repentance, saying, I was wrong all along, God was right all along, trusting in Him for our salvation. What we have in that kindness is just, it's expressed so beautifully in 1 John 3 1, where it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. 
and so we are. He's made us who were his enemies. He's made us his children. And he's brought us in and he's loved us. So consider that. The kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness toward us, that's us who believe. He goes on and he expands a little bit about this. And let's think about this. Who it is that this severity is toward, who it is that this kindness is toward. He gives some sobering thoughts here. Verse 22. We're still in the first verse. We'll speed up a little. Don't worry. He says, God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, do you hear that? He says here, he's kind of repeating something that he had said a little bit in the previous verse, do not become proud, but fear. He's saying, consider what happened with Israel. That so many have not believed, so many today are standing cut off from God by their unbelief. So don't become proud, don't become arrogant, don't presume to say to yourself, God will just show me the riches of his kindness. That's exactly what it says in in Romans 2. Do not presume upon the riches of his kindness, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And so he says, continue in his kindness, otherwise you'll be cut off. What does it mean to continue in his kindness? Does it mean you you better do enough good things now? Now that you've been saved by grace, you'd better do enough good works to keep yourself in the kingdom. No, he doesn't say that. He says continue in his kindness. You know what that means? It means a continuation in our ongoing dependence upon God's grace alone to save us, to keep us for all eternity. Now, is that going to affect the way that we live? Of course it's going to affect the way that we live. You you can't have a continuation in the realization that my sin killed Jesus and that Jesus saved me even though I was a sinner. You can't keep up in that and your life not be changed. So yeah, it's going to overflow in good works in various ways, but he doesn't say, here's how you continue in the kindness of God by doing enough for him. He says, here is what's going to happen. You are in his kindness provided you continue in his kindness. Stay in that grace Stay in that mercy. It's the same thing Paul and Barnabas told to the believers in Antioch of Pisidia in Acts 13.43, where he says that he urged them to continue in the grace of God. We have to keep on enjoying God's goodness and grace. What that looks like, I'll just read you a section of our statement of faith, the New Hampshire Confession, the confession that this church first adopted in 1856 and that we hold today. It says that of the perseverance of the saints, that means staying saved, we believe that such only are real believers as endure to the end, that their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors, which means fake believers, that a special providence watches over their welfare, and that they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Guys, God keeps us. God keeps us. When it says this thing here, otherwise you will be cut off, you need to know that it's not saying that there is somebody out there who is a saved believer right now who tomorrow is going to be cut off and cast into hell because they messed up. It is not saying that. 
And the re- part of the reason we know it's not saying that is because he said that really, really clearly, kind of like the whole second half of Romans 8. Remember that? If, if he's brought you in, he's keeping you in. There is nothing that's going to separate you from the love of God in Christ. Or you can see it in John 6, where Jesus says really, really clearly that all that the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never cast him out. You hear that? It's secure from the very beginning. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right? So when it says, otherwise you will be cut off, it's not saying that there's believers who are going to be lost. What it is saying is this. It's saying that there are those who are around churches, who have nice things to say about Jesus, who will not be in heaven because they are depending on something other than Christ. Their faith is not in Christ. The mark of those who are in Christ is that they continue in Christ. And all who are in Christ are going to stay in His mercy and His grace. That's why it says, I'll just read you 1 Corinthians 15.2. It says, this gospel is the gospel by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Believed in vain would be making a profession of faith, but you're, you're not actually trusting in Christ. Or Hebrews 3.14, if we share in Christ, we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, every time we talk about this, there's going to be some portion of the people in the room who are terrified that because they don't feel the same passion that they did on some given day in their past for Christ, that maybe I am not continuing in his kindness. Maybe I am going to be cut off. I have good news for you. Wavering believer, it's Jesus who keeps you. It's not you who keeps you. It is Jesus who keeps you. And he says in Jude 24 that he is the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. He's able to do that. I will tell you, just as John MacArthur has famously said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. And maybe some of you feel that today. But by God's grace, if Jesus has saved you, he will not let you go. So when it says, continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off, it is not saying you're going to lose your salvation. It's a call for the endurance of the saints. Same thing that I think is the theme verse of the book of Revelation, in Revelation 14, 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Continue in his kindness. When it says this being cut off, what is that talking about? What is it talking about in these weird passages in the Bible like Exodus 32, 33 about being blotted out of God's book? Well, it's the same thing we said earlier. The God's role on earth is not the same as, or excuse me, the, the role on earth of the people of God is not the same as the role in heaven of the true people of God. If there are people listed in the Old Testament as children of Abraham, who today are suffering under the eternal severity of God. You need to know that it's also possible that there are people today who are on the membership role of First Baptist Church of Matawan 
who are not on the role of the book of life in heaven. That's what this is calling us to examine ourselves about. You could have grown up in church. You could have known all the right things to say. You could have even come in not growing up in church, and yet you see, well, there's something about this place. I'm going to learn the right language. You can get all the right words and actions in front of all the right people. And that's really all we have to go on, and that's all Jesus said we could go on. He said, you shall know them by their fruits, right? That's words and actions. But you can use those fruits. You can make them look a certain way. You can fool the pastor. You can fool the congregation. But you need to know that God knows your heart. If you are not today in the kindness of God, in the grace of Jesus Christ, if you are depending on your goodness, your works, your ability to fool people, or maybe even thinking you can fool God into thinking that you are a good Christian, when in fact your heart is far from Christ, your faith is not in Christ, your faith is in yourself, if that's what that is. Turn to Jesus. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Repent, believe, and be saved. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. That's what it says. Note the kindness and the severity of God. Stand in awe and fear. Continue in His kindness. Don't go out of the gospel to something else. And then he says, though, that there is eternal kindness to those who don't continue in their unbelief. This is verses 23 and 24. Very similar to some other things that are said in this chapter. It says, even if they, even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, that's specifically talking about these descendants of Abraham, if they do not continue in their unbelief toward Jesus, that means if they turn and believe in Jesus, they will be grafted in. That means they'll be put back into the olive tree of Israel, put back into the olive tree of the true spiritual Israel, the true people of God that are enrolled in heaven. He says they will be grafted back in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you, if you scraggly little bush, scraggly little non-fruit-bearing wild olive bush, if you were cut from by nature what is a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, he's saying if God could even save me, then how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? He's saying, look, don't write people off. Jew, Gentile, or anything else, don't write people off and say, well, they don't believe, and so we will just not care. He's saying how incredible it is. Even those who right now are outside of God's kindness that he is able to give them the gift of faith. He's able to save. He is able, and the way that he says he's able is that he has the power, back in verse 22. He has the power. He has the power to do what it says in 2 Corinthians 3.16, that when someone turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. He has the power to do something like he did for the Apostle Paul, the, the very person writing this book, who was 
a branch cut off from the olive tree. He was an unbeliever who hated Christians, hated the idea that anyone would say that Jesus is Lord. Well, the Lord met him. And after the Lord met him, something like scales fell from his eyes, it says. And he believed in the Lord Jesus, and he was grafted back in. He was made part of the true people of God by faith in Jesus. He has the power to do it. And what is that power? Well, it's called the gospel. It says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. For salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And so we can look at that and we can say, let's bring the power that is the gospel so that God would then use this power to put people into this tree, to bring people out of, from under his severity, to bring them into his kindness by saving them, turning them to Jesus in faith. I do want to mention, as we've been going through here and talking a lot about those who are of Jewish heritage and our desire for them to be saved, um, there's a gospel track that we have available here, and it's, there's several of them back in that rack over there. Um, it's out of print, but we managed to get a bunch of them anyway. Uh, it's called How to Recognize the Messiah. And it's a great thing if you have Jewish friends and family members, neighbors, whatever, and you're trying to share the gospel with them, it's a great thing that you can put in their hands and it will just go through the Old Testament and say, don't you see that all of this was about Jesus all along? And it's a great uh, tool to use for that end, but just knowing that God has the power to graft them back in again. And what an incredible thing to be able to see that as we look to Jesus, Jesus, who took the severity of God on the cross so that we could have the kindness of God for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today that Christ has come. We thank you that uh, he took the full punishment for our sins, for all of your true spiritual people, your true spiritual Israel, all of your elect for all time. And I thank you that he has risen from the dead, finished the payment. I thank you that he is our Lord who is reigning above and Lord, we thank you that we now, as those who trust in Jesus, can experience his kindness for all eternity. God, I pray that you give us a bit of sobriety about this. I pray that if there are any who um, are not continuing in the kindness of Christ right now, maybe they're on the church roll, but they're not on the roll of heaven, I pray that you would save them by your grace to depend not on being on the church roll or on goodness or anything else, but to depend on Christ for their salvation. God, I pray for those who are outside of Christ right now. Uh, Lord, this calls us pretty clearly here to pray for your power toward those who are among the descendants of Israel, uh, who you have the power to bring into your olive tree. We pray that you would do that. We pray that you would bring in others as well. Even help us today as we go to share the gospel and keep it. I pray that you'd bring people in. God, I pray that you, above all, would help us to know you, to note these things about you, to set our minds on you. Help us, as, even as we contemplate the severity and the kindness uh, that you have, to adore you, to love you, to hallow your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.